amen. God made you for mission. God did not simply make you for consumption. God, certainly if you're a Christian, he did not make you just to show up and sing songs and attend the church. He, he made you to connect with God's global purposes. And I know the Portmans. That video really needed to be about 20 minutes long, okay? Because I know the whole story. I know that they were going to a place that the last time they went and they took a trip, Shay and Scott, and they said, let's go. They put their kids, they got the grandparents, they got the kids there, and the kids made a list and said, Can you, mom and dad, we're, I know we're gonna move our family here. Can you check and see if they have peanut butter? <laughs> and they made a list of things. They were going so far away. By the way, when he hurt his back, the IMB said, sorry, you can't go anywhere where there are not good hospitals and not good roads. That's the kind of place they were headed. And so what did they do? And what I love about it is, is, is they are true missionaries in the best sense of the word, which is what every Christian should be, which means this. There's no transformation by aviation. Every once in a while, people want to be a missionary. It's like, are you reading the Bible here? No, it's like, you're not going to read it there. Nothing happens to you when you get on a 747. <laughs> It'd be awesome, but everywhere you go, you bring you. And so you go there and you go, well, I'm not sharing the gospel here, but if I went to a faraway place where they spoke a different language, I'd do it there. No, you wouldn't. And what we see with the Portmans, what I love is when they were in Raleigh-Durham, they were sharing the gospel. When they wanted to go to the hardest, I would call it maybe the hardest place on earth if I was allowed to say the name. They were ready to bring their five beautiful young kids there. And then they were heartbroken that they couldn't go. And then God redirected them and they show up in Singapore and they, what do they do? Well, they do what Christians do anywhere. They just have a ministry. So they're leading people to Christ in Singapore. They didn't want to come back. That's a whole nother story. Then they thought they were going to Arkansas and that got canceled and they ended up in Clemens, of all places, right? It's like from, from Singapore to Clemens and here they are just doing the ministry. And so here's why this is important. I want you to understand, so I want you to understand, so I want you to understand, so I want you to understand this, is that everywhere you go, you either move for the sake of mission or you make where you are a place of mission, that's it. You either leave and you're all still here. <laughs> it's good to see you. You're all still here. So if you didn't leave, that means that what you do is you leverage your place where you are. And so one of the ways we do that multiple ways, okay? One of the ways we do that is by everybody who goes, we commit to give. When somebody goes, we commit to hold the rope. So we've been talking about hold the rope offering. And I wanna tell you again, our three partners. Okay, I want you to know these people. I want you to pray for these people. I want you to pray for David and Kathy Parsons. David and Kathy Parsons are in their 60s and they are ministering to the poorest of the poor who are dealing with spiritual and financial generational poverty. And they're trying to bring two things that you might assume, maybe you grew up always having them. Maybe your dad and mom always had them. Most people don't. Jesus and the job. And it's like, that's what you need. Your fundamental need is Jesus. It's like, okay, I came to Christ. Now what? I'm still hungry. I still, I still, I still need work. I still need health care. I still need housing. It's like, well, what do you need? Jesus and a job. And what Dave and Kathy Parsons are doing is they're dealing with generational poverty. And what poverty is, it's a lot of things, right? It's complex. But what poverty is, it's a lack of relationships. That's what it is. I, I don't have a good relationship with money. I don't have a good relationship with work. Often, often, right, what happens when you see a homeless person? Usually you're like, what has happened? All of their relationships have collapsed. Where's their mom and dad? Where's their brother and sister? Where's their church? There's no relationships. We're gonna come along, David Parsons, and whatever you give to this initiative, we're gonna give him a quarter of it. We're hoping that's tens of thousands of dollars to help him go further faster. Secondly, Jeremy and Victoria Woods, they're moving to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina with their whole family. They got a little, I believe, three-year-old daughter. They are so excited about this ministry. They are leaving Asheville, North Carolina, where they're very comfortable, where he has a great job at a church and where he could have retired from. 
And what we're asking is we're going to give a quarter of everything that you give to him to help him launch as large as possible in the midst of COVID in one of the darkest cities in the Southeast Myrtle Beach. And we're asking, could some of you go? Some of you could go. Do you have the kind of job where, you know, we're, we're giving you two options. Do you like the Steelers and the Pirates? Pittsburgh's your option, okay? That was last week. Uh, do you like the beach? Myrtle Beach is your option. We're giving you a Northern and a Southern option, okay? And part of this is our culture. Look, if you commit to going, we're gonna bring you up on the stage. We're gonna pray over you. We're gonna send you. And we'd like a lot of people to go. We wanna hold people very, very loosely here, really, really loosely. I get really, really excited when somebody joins a launch team to leave. And what we tell them every time is if they join a launch team to leave, we say, please stop giving to our church. Please start giving to that church. And then they look really confused. <laughs> we say, no, that's what we want you to do. We want you to immediately stop giving to our church. If you're gonna be on that team, we want your heart, your heart will follow where your money is. We want you to immediately start giving to this church plan. The third thing is Mumbai. Can you show a picture of Mumbai? Uh, we've got this family in Mumbai, and if you look at this family, you go, they look just like me and you, because they are just like you and me. This family, I can't say their names. This is how world missions works. If you're not familiar with this kind of stuff, you can say places without names and names without places. That's how that works. Um, this family is from Missouri, okay? And they went from Missouri to Mumbai to lead a team there. They've been there for 15 years. They're not planning on coming home. They're giving their entire life to these people. When I was there, their teammates love them because they lead them. He's their pastor. And they say, he, they say he speaks Hindi better than anybody else there, even the natives, because he's given his life to learning this language and ministering to these people. And they need help. And whatever you give, we're going to give half of it to them to help them go further faster. So would you, what, here's our goal. We're, we don't have a, a, um, a financial goal. We have a participation goal. We pray that 100% of people who call Two Cities Home will give a one-time gift above and beyond normal tithes and offerings to this initiative and do it by the end of the year so that we can call them. We want the first phone call they get in January to be a good news phone call. There's been a lot of bad news. We're gonna give you good news. We're giving you this much money. Use it for gospel ministry. We love and we're praying for you. So that's the whole robe offering. Second thing I wanna tell you about is our weekender. Uh, we got some pictures. We had the second, or, or second time in a row, we've had the largest weekender to date. We had 80 people here. Uh, and let me just say about the weekender, the weekender is not, uh, the weekender exists if you want to do more than just attend church. If you want to just come, sing songs, drop your kids off, the weekender is not for you. If you want to casually attend and decide when you're going to be, not really be committed and, and not really be held accountable, not really be in community, the weekender is not for you. The weekender is for the person who says, I want to connect my life and my family to God's global purposes. And I wanna connect myself. I'm in Winston-Salem for however long you're in. We have a, somewhat of a transient church because we have a long, young church. A lot of people are here for three or five years. I'd like to make that time in Winston very strategic by connecting my time, my talent, my treasure, my resources, my relationships, my passions to this church. We're honored every time someone decides to do that. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna jump into our series. Uh, we're doing a Christmas series for a few weeks here as we head into Christmas. But let's pray for our missionary partners and let's pray for the families who decided to uh, take that next step forward in the weekend? Pray with me. Lord, I want to pray for these families. I pray for the Parsons. I thank you for their gospel ministry. God, strengthen them. They've been doing the same thing in a hard area for a long time. And what people need is encouragement. I believe that's what most marriages need. That's what most ministries need. That's what most men and women need. Lord, we want to bring a word of encouragement and a gift of encouragement. Lord, I pray for Jeremy and Victoria. God bless them. They are doing a hard work. They're leaving one hard area, Asheville, for another hard area, Myrtle Beach. Lord, strengthen them, equip them for the work of the ministry, Lord. Strengthen their marriage. Lord, they're praying for dozens of people to join their launch team. Lord, I pray that there would be multiple families from our church that would either decide to go 
to Myrtle Beach or to Pittsburgh, that they'd be praying and asking the question, Lord, are you calling me to go? Well, we pray for the ministry in Mumbai as they continue to minister all over that city, Lord. And we thank you for the strength that we're seeing in our own church as people step up with their time, their talent, their treasure to connect meaningfully to our church for your global purposes. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can type two, turn to Luke one. Luke chapter one, okay, it's in your New Testament. We are in a series, a Christmas series for four weeks, uh, looking at different passages and perspectives on Christmas. And as you turn to Luke one, let me ask you kind of an important, slightly intimate question. When do you start Christmas decorating, okay? When do you start playing the Christmas music, okay? Uh, is it right after Thanksgiving, like you just started, or are you more biblical like me and my family, and you do it right after Halloween? <laughs> none of you, okay, none of you. <laughs> we start early. I want, I want a solid two months of Christmas music and decorations, and I heard it once described that Christmas is a crazy time of year where we take a tree from the outside and bring it inside. We take the lights from the outside and bring it inside. We take our socks off and we hang them over the chimney place, okay? It's, very, it's a very interesting time of year. And what's interesting, the reason that we do a four-week series on Christmas, you might wanna ask this. There's a couple reasons we do that. First of all, uh, there's an article in Vox, not a Christian magazine. And, and what Vox said was they said there's two Christmases every year. And this was an interesting observation. They said there's two Christmases every year. They said there's the traditional Christmas of Joseph and Mary and angels and shepherds and mangers and nativity scenes and Christmas services and Moravian love feast for those of us in Winston. There, 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 are, there is what would be the traditional Christmas and then there is the new Christmas of Hallmark movies and eggnog and ugly sweaters, okay? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and, and all of the new hip songs of the day and, and all of the um, white Santa and secret Santa and white Christmas giving and all that. And again, we're not against one. Um, we're not against the, the things I just said there. But it's interesting. I think that the longer that we're here and the, the more post-Christian our culture gets, the more we're gonna need to clarity on what is Christmas all about? Why, does, why do Christians a lot of times celebrate Advent? Why do we have weeks and weeks and weeks Oftentimes, the average church will just talking about the birth of Christ. That's what we're gonna be looking at in the weeks to come. And you may ask this question, why December 25th? Is December 25th Jesus' birthday? No, not really. Uh, we had to choose a date, okay? And a long time ago, how did this happen? This is actually a good principle because we can learn a lot of things from the past, okay? From what Christians, there's like nothing you've thought of, okay, that other Christians haven't already thought of a lot more than you've thought of it, okay? Uh, they didn't have TV, they didn't have you know, social media, they didn't have Netflix, they just thought about this stuff all the time, okay? So what, what they had to decide is, uh, the reason that Christmas became Christmas is they took an old pagan holiday called Saturnalia. It was on December 25th. And they said, well, this is something, they're already getting those time off, there's already celebrations, this will be an easy time. We will redeem, this is very important, we will redeem that day and make it Christmas. Now, th this is important because what we have to understand in culture, is culture gets crazy, you have three options. You can reject, you can redeem, or you can receive. Reject, receive, redeem. Now, it, some of you grew up in a home that was very independent, fundamentalist, and they rejected everything, right? It's like they wanna create a subculture for everything. We reject, the world is bad, there's nothing good from the world, bomb shelter, monastery mentality. That's the reject mentality, okay? That's the danger of conservatism, that's the danger of independent fundamentalists. On the other end is we receive everything. We receive everything from the culture. We receive all the entertainment. That's theologic liberalism, right? There's certain things you can't receive, right? There is no Christian crack cocaine, okay? You can't, you, you can't, you can't receive it as it is. You can't redeem it, okay? You can't do any of that. And there, there's things that you have to redeem. You say, how do I redeem these things? And I want you to understand that Christmas, the idea of celebrating Christmas and choosing a day and spending multiple weeks was early Christians' idea of how do we redeem what was pagan, and you're gonna have to figure out, just as we're in this and each family will make different decisions, how are you going to redeem Christmas? 
Like, what are you gonna do with Santa, right? Some people say, we can redeem Santa. Others of you go, Santa and Satan have the same letters. Okay, we get it, okay? <laughs> Some of you say that, um, okay? And so the question is just, how are we gonna read? But I want us to go back to the first Christmas and see it in a fresh way. It's gonna be a familiar story that you need to see in a fresh way. In the first Christmas, here's what happened. God comes to a very poor woman who happens to be probably 14 or 15 years old. You know her as Mary. She's very poor and she's from a very poor area and we know how small her city is, Nazareth, because the well there couldn't hold for more than 100 people. So we're talking a very young woman who's very poor, who's probably illiterate. And that's who God appears to. And her husband is probably three to five years older than her. her. So we're looking at late teens, early 20s is for Joseph. I want you to see, I want you to see this story fresh in a new way. Turn with me, uh, Luke chapter one, verse 26. Luke one, verse 26. Here's where the Christmas story starts. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, and you know it's a big deal when Gabe shows up, okay? <laughs> there's, a, there's lots of angels in the Bible, only two that get names, Gabriel, Michael. They're the archangels. When they show up, it's a big deal. So here they are, or here's one of them. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was, if you circle in your Bible or underline, here it is, sent from God. Christmas starts from God's heart. What makes Christianity different than every other religion is Christianity is God's pursuit of you, not your pursuit of him. So it starts with God saying, I'm going to send an angel to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, I wanna talk about this because I want you to get this. I wanna get this. I want you to get this. If you're new, if you're watching online, what makes Christianity different than any any other religion? It's that God is the great initiator. God initiates in three ways, okay? God initiates by creating the world, right? A lot of people think, why did God create the world? Did God create the world uh, like, you know, because he was lonely and was lacking and had need, right? Was it like a bad marriage that said, well, our marriage isn't going well. Maybe we should add another needy person to this marriage. It'll help. People do that, okay? And it doesn't help. And that's not healthy, okay? But what happens is, what does a healthy marriage say? A healthy marriage says we love each other. We love the Lord. We have a house. We have more than we need, probably. And what we have is so good, we'd love to share it with another person, that, that's how you have to understand creation. Creation is God says, I've got so much love. I've got so much joy. I've got so much truth. I've got so much beauty. I'm going to share it. And that's why the world exists. Because the number one philosophical question is, it's a good question. Why is there something rather than nothing? And the answer is not because God lacked anything, but because God had so much he wanted to share it. This is why theologians call creation the theater of God's glory. It's where God shows off. It's where his goodness and his greatness and his glory is mostly seen. Well, then there's God initiates in revelation, right? So that's important. So God creates the world, you know, that's really good. Uh, and then he reveals himself because you wouldn't know God and I wouldn't know God if God didn't reveal himself to us. If God did not make himself known. If he did not forfeit his personal privacy to let us know him. So what does God do? God says, I'm gonna let myself be known. I'm gonna give you a book. It's gonna be fixed, objective, outside of you. And it's gonna tell you about me because you're too finite, you're too biased, you're too weak, you're too ignorant, and you're too sinful to know me any other way. Without revelation, all you'd have is speculation, what you think about God. We have revelation, what God has said to us. And then thirdly, salvation. And I love this, that God initiates to us in salvation. Think about that, creation, revelation, salvation, okay? Salvation is that God's gonna come after us because we can't come after him. God, the salvation says that while you were still a sinner, while you were still an enemy of God, Christ died for you. Now, you have to understand that's the opposite of religion, but it's at the heart of the Christian message. The heart of the Christian message is God humbling and humiliating himself to the point of not just a human, but a needy, what's the neediest thing on earth? Like another baby, a baby. That is completely dependent, right? On the parents and especially on the mother, especially for the first few years of life. God humbles himself. Now, that's the opposite of religion. Religion is you work your way to God. 
And a lot of people still have that mentality, right? There's the old religion, which is I say my prayers and I go to church and I give some money and I, and I go on a mission trip and I do Habitat for Humanity and, I do, and, and, and I, because I do those things, God will love me. And then there's the new millennial version of that, which is I'm a good person because I shop at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, right? I reduce, reuse, and recycle. I ride my bike and my, my home is solar powered. I'm the most tolerant person that I know and I think everybody's okay and anybody can believe whatever they wanna believe, even if it's harmful and unhelpful. And that makes me a good person. And so God comes into all of that and says, God sends, I want you to see what it says, to Galilee and it says to Nazareth. Now that is like the smallest place ever, right? You'd think like if God's gonna come to America, like say, you know, he came today, it's like, where would you think he's gonna come? Well, you'd probably, if you're like, I'm going to guess, I'm gonna probably say like, I don't know, Manhattan, Chicago, San Francisco, Houston, Boston, and it's like, no, he comes to rural hall. I mean, that's kind of, you know? He comes to king. He comes to where we would not expect him otherwise, right? I mean, think about that. That is a fascinating, it's really worth thinking about. He actually comes to a bad area of town that not many people went to that was mostly full of poor people that others had forgotten about. It's like, you know, God's not going to Buena Vista. He's probably going to Boston Thurman. God's not going to West Winston. It's more likely he'd end up in East Winston. I mean, just because what, how do we know what God would do? Only what we only know that because of what God has done. And so what he does there is, is what you're saying there is that I go, God says, I, I care about every person in every place. Do you know, Christianity, by the way, is the most diverse religion on earth. Every other world religion has 80% of its followers living in one place. That's something really worth thinking about. Where do most Muslims live? Well, we know, the Middle East. Where do most Mormons live? Salt Lake City, Utah, <laughs> right? Where do most Buddhists live? Well, we know, where, it's, it's like, where do most Orthodox Jews live? They, we know where they live in Israel. It's like Christianity is 20% in South America, 20% in North America, 20% in Europe, 20% in Africa, 20% in Asia, roughly. It, it, because at the very beginning, Christmas said, I'm going after every person in every place. And it was the opposite of what everyone else thought. Everyone else thought, God cares about the rich. I mean, because that's what every king says. God's on my side. That's what every pharaoh and every emperor and every Caesar said. I am God, or if I'm not God, I'm his son. And he loves me. So everyone thought, well, God loves powerful and rich and beautiful and good-looking people. God doesn't love me. And God says, no, I'm actually gonna come to like these two like teenagers who can't read and are poor and are in a small town. And he comes to them. It reminded me of, I looked up, what is the smallest town in America? And I found this, if you'll put this picture up. Beaufort, Wyoming, population one, Okay. <laughs> I read about it. This guy was holding out. That picture was taken in 2011. In 2012, the last guy who was living there got out of there, okay? He left. Uh, so it, there's no one living there anymore, but that guy was, was holding out. But the whole idea is he comes to a very small town, to a very small place, to a very obscure people. And I want you to see what he says, and I want us to see this new again for the first time. Look at verse 27. Here's what he says. So here's who he comes to. First, as an, first he comes and gives an angel. Later, he'll send his son. To a virgin, we'll return to that, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So I need to talk about a couple things. First of all, you got Joseph, Mary. I've told you already, they're teenagers. Maybe Joseph is 20, maybe. They're most likely both between like 15 and 20 years old. And what they're betrothed. Now let me explain betrothal. Betrothal is like a more intense version of engagement, okay? So here's what engagement, you know, you guys know what engagement is, but I've seen this one. Sometimes people get engaged and then they get unengaged or they get disengaged. It happens, right? Because sometimes you're getting engaged and you're like, well, we're planning a wedding and get, you know, we're eating each other's families more and we're, and the relationship becomes more businesslike. It becomes sometimes more intense. And some, some people don't make it out of engagement. They get disengaged. I've known several people like that. 
But this was different. Betrothal was kind of like engagement, except you took vows. So I think betrothal was like, um, you, you take the vow of husband and wife, but you don't celebrate it publicly and you don't consummate it personally. So there, the sexual relationship had not started. The public, the public celebration ceremonies had not started, but they had taken vows and basically had gone their separate ways. You know, Joseph needs to get a job. He needs to figure out what he's going to work. She's got to plan the wedding. And this is very, very normal. And the betrothal could last anywhere from three months to a year. And it's, it's, so you have to understand this, that it, this is going to help the story make sense. It, once you were betrothed, if you broke it, you were breaking your vows. And so you were getting a divorce. And so what ends up happening, and I want you to understand this, is that the um, angel appears to Mary and tells Mary, you're going to be with child. You know the story. It, we get some of it, by the way, in Luke 1. The rest of it, if you're like, isn't there other parts of the story? It's Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2, if you want to read them together. But the angel appears to Mary, you know the story, basically says, you're going to be with child. You're going to be the only virgin ever to have a kid. Um, you know, you're never going to know a man before having this kid. And, uh, and so she has that news. Obviously, that's, how does that sound if you're a 16, how many at 16-year-old girls say, I'm not ready to raise God? right? All of us, right? Not ready to raise God. Well, she wasn't either. So she gets this news that you're going to raise God. And then she's got to tell her husband, and this is Joseph. And this is interesting because Joseph, we know when he first finds out, we know this from Matthew, Joseph finds out, he basically says he's going to divorce her privately. And we don't know how he finds out. Does she tell him? That's what we assume. Um, you know, but it's, let's be honest, it was a story that's hard to believe. You know, <laughs> I'm pregnant, but I promise I've never known anyone. It's like, well, that, that's a hard story to believe. And so, or an impossible story basically to believe. And so it says that he had two options. He could have uh, divorced her privately or shamed her publicly. And he's a godly man, so he decides I'm gonna divorce her privately. Then an angel appears to him. I'm just kind of catching us up on the story. What's interesting about Joseph is the angel appears to him, tells him the same story, and then Joseph has to realize something. I'm going to have to make some decisions personally that people are not gonna understand publicly. And what's interesting is both of these, Christmas starts with two teenagers who are going to be misunderstood in their small religious town for the rest of their lives. Right, because they're going to get married, and it's like two months later, Jesus is going to be born. It's like, well, what happened there? And how are, are small town religious people nice? No, the answer is no to that. Okay, <laughs> do they tend to be judgmental, particularly if 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 a girl gets pregnant out of wedlock? Right, I mean, imagine it's like something happening in Birmingham, Alabama, in 1940. That's kind of what it would be like. So a couple things. One, I want us to look at Joseph. We'll talk, we're going to talk more about Mary, but, but for the men, to look at Joseph and go, look, I think we need to learn from Joseph. Here's a couple things about Joseph. Joseph is a godly man who followed the Lord even though his life didn't turn out how he thought it was going to. You know, and I want to say to some of the men in here, do not overlook the single moms that you could marry and raise their kid. And help. That's exactly what Joseph did. What did Joseph do? Raise, marry a single mom, be a great stepdad to his stepson, Jesus. And had a huge influence. How did, Jesus, how did Jesus become a carpenter? Thank you, Joseph. How did Jesus have enough to eat? Thank you, Joseph. How did Mary have any kind of stability to raise Jesus? Thank you, Joseph. And Joseph had to make a decision, which is the opposite decision that most men make. I'm gonna care more about my character than my reputation. Most men care more about their reputation than their character, so they're very defensive. They're always worried about what you're thinking. They're always making sure everything looks good online. They're always making sure their wife doesn't cry when something's being said negative about men. They, they care more about how they look, reputation, than what's actually going on in their heart, character, than building their character. So that's Joseph. We're gonna spend a lot more time on Mary because it's actually more about Mary. Look, look again at verse 27. It says this. 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. I want to talk about Mary for a while for a couple of reasons. Number one, as, a, as Protestants, we don't talk about her enough. So I want you to know this, Catholics esteem Mary too highly, okay? They do. You'll, if you go into, if you've ever been to a Catholic church, you're like, why are there pictures of Mary everywhere, right? Why are there statues of Mary everywhere? But honestly, Protestants, um, which is what we are, um, th- they tend to esteem Mary way too lowly. It's like, all right, God chose somebody to take care of his son. Let's honor her. And if you don't know this, the, the number two most famous picture, Christian drawing, like, you know, what, what's drawn the most? Well, the answer is the cross, the crucifixion, various forms of that are, is what's drawn the most. What's the second most drawn and beloved picture in Christian history? Mary holding baby Jesus. Because that's a very, very important image. Mary willingly accepts to raise God. And I, and I, and I say this because Mary's a young girl. And I think, again, you know, young women, all women, but young women particularly need other women to look up to. And I think Mary's an incredible woman to look up to. First of all, she, she's a virgin, which I know that's, that's kind of a surprising idea today in the 21st century, right? We know everyone thinks that's funny because the movie 40-Year-Old Virgin, was that a documentary or was that a hilarious comedy that someone would be a virgin at 40 years old? Well, we know what it is, right? It was, it was trying to be a hilarious comedy. We live in this interesting culture. I want you to think with me about this for a second about sex. And we have to talk about, you know, again, we, we always want to, when we talk about sex and stuff, you can't, you, we don't want to be medical and cold, and we don't want to be crass. But we have to talk about these things, okay? If we're silent about these things, we don't understand them, then we just follow what the culture says. The culture is super confused about sex because, first of all, modern people want to act like sex is not dangerous. Sex is dangerous at every level of analysis all the time. Sex is dangerous emotionally. Sex is dangerous, can be dangerous physically. Sex is dangerous relationally. Sex is dangerous because of disease. Sex is dangerous because you can get pregnant. Sex is very dangerous. And we live in this time where modern people want to go, sex is casual. I can be a part of the hookup, shackup, breakup culture. It doesn't matter you know, how, many spou- how many people I sleep with before I get married, which is an interesting thought because here's what happens. If you treat other people like they're casual sexual partners, you treat yourself like you are a casual sexual partner. And you wake up 15 years from now and you go, I'm a casual sexual partner. You can't treat other people that way and not treat yourself that way. But then our, our culture is really confused because it wants to go, hey, ca- hey, all we need is consent. The Bible says all you need is covenant. <laughs> but they say all you need is consent. And then you come over here and at the same time they want to go, it's the most important thing about me is my gender and my sexuality. Think about how it's incoherent. It can't be casual and meaningless And I can do it with whoever I want, whenever I want, however I want, as many times as I want, it doesn't matter. And it's the most important thing about me. It's my primary identity. It's like, no, it's all wrong. This thinks of it too low. This thinks of it too high. And so we have this idea of sexuality, and this is interesting. And the reason I talk about this is because particularly young women are very, very confused. And it's not their fault. I'm not patronizing anyone. I'm not being... I'm not speaking down to anybody, but we live in a culture that has lied to women all their life. It said, you will find your meaning in your career. No, you won't. Men won't either. We actually know that statistically. Men don't find their meaning in careers. Women don't find their meanings in career, especially as you age. This is why, by the way, the birth rates fall in for all 20-year-old women and 30s, and then guess where the birth rate's exploding? 40s. Because women are realizing in their late 30s and their early 40s, I've been lied to my whole life. Everybody told me work 80 hours and get an abortion, and I wonder why I'm so unhappy. 
And everybody told me I could do whatever I want with my body and have multiple sexual partners and it wouldn't matter and now I don't know how to have a relationship. And if you wanna meet a sad person, you meet somebody in their late 30s, particularly a woman who's been lied to. You don't need to get married. We're not saying everyone gets married. You don't need to have kids. We're not saying everyone has kids or can have kids. We're saying that the normal human experience across time for all people has been to get married and have kids and you're a very unique person if that's not something that's on your heart. And most people have no idea what's on their heart. And so and it's heartbreaking because what we're seeing with young women is the transgender movement. And yes, we're going to talk about the transgender movement for a little bit. And the reason that we have to talk about these things is, is so, so 10 years ago, they estimated that the amount of people who were experiencing gender dysphoria, which is when you say your gender, follow, this is all hard to understand. When you say that your gender is different than your biological sex, how you feel about yourself is different than your body. There was 0.01% of people 10 years ago who struggled with that. That's one-tenth of 1%, and most of them got over it. It was a small, short season of their life that their parents and others helped them walk through, where they were confused for various reasons. In the last 10 years, it has grown by 4,400%. And there's a book that just came out called, it's not written by a Christian woman, it's called Irreversible Damage, what the, how the transgender movement is destroying our girls. And basically what she says is that what happens for women and, and men too, but is, you know, somewhere between, and the ages change a little bit, but somewhere between 10 and 14 years old, you go through puberty. And what happens when you, this is what she says, the lady says in the book, what happens when you go through puberty as a woman is you feel ugly, awkward, and you wonder, and unwanted, and different. And that's just been the human experience for all of us, you know, for a long time. But now, and you used to just, people would help you get through it. Now people think, maybe if I shed myself of this female body, I wouldn't feel so awkward. And so I want you to understand this. Like when, when everybody's celebrating Ellen Page becoming Elliot Page, if you didn't, and by the way, she was in Inception, she was in Juno, she's in Umbrella Academy, which a lot of young people are watching. If you're watching this, it's like you see this, she already said she was gay, and now she says that she's trans, transgendering and changing into a man. You know, you have to, and again, people, whenever I talk about this, sometimes people think, you're afraid of, you know, gay people, or trans no, I'm not. You're afraid of, no, I'm not. No, I'm not afraid of transgender people. I'm not afraid of any of that. You don't understand it. No, I do understand it. I do understand it. I don't understand everything, just like you don't understand everything. Just like you don't understand everything. But I understand it. And what it is, is it, it is a, and I mean this with compassion, because you have to have compassion and you have to have clarity and you have to have conviction, all of it. And you'll be confusing if you do. Transgenderism is a mental illness. There's no question that's what it is. If you say, I think I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, what you're saying is my feelings are more important than my biology. No, 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 no. That's called mental illness. And so what we have to say, we may be the last people because we have something to stand on. Everybody else is just lying to themselves and, and walking around saying the emperor has no clothes on. And, you know, and I know what's going to happen. I actually know what's going to happen. In about 10 or 15 years, all of these women are going to sue. Yep. They're gonna sue these doctors. They're gonna sue people who gave them hormone blockers. And those people are gonna get what they have come to them. You're messing with some serious stuff. And so we, we've gotta talk about this. And so Mary's a great example. She's godly, she's a virgin, she loves the Lord. God comes to a young girl who says, she, she gives dignity to being a mom and to being a wife. She's a virgin. Here's what it says next, verse 29. But she has a response, right? She has the response a lot of young people have when they hear the gospel. She was troubled. It means she had a lot of questions about it. 
She was troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And then if this is not the word, this, if this is not the word for 2020, I don't know what is. Here's what it says. This is the word. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. What an incredible word for 2020. Do not fear. Mary, for you have found favor with God. Isn't this incredible? We live in a time, and I don't you understand this, the Bible says that there is a spirit of fear. So sometimes there's fears that are emotional, right? People have fears that are emotional. You know, if you see a bear in the woods and it's running after you, that would be a good time to have the emotion of fear, okay? <laughs> That's right. But there's a spirit of fear. What is a spirit of fear? A spirit of fear is when everybody is consumed with fear. You see it in our culture. We live in a mob mentality culture where everybody is afraid all of the time. And I wanna talk about fear for a few minutes because we see how God's going to help Mary confront our fears. And we live in such a time of fear and fear, what fear does is paralyze us instead of faith which empowers us. We cannot live a life of fear. And I'm not talking about do you stay home or do you come here or do you wear masks and do you pound versus give the elbow and how much social, we're not, we're not playing Pharisees and Sadducees on who's more spiritual and how we're responding to COVID. We're not doing that. I'm talking about a genuine call to be faith-filled versus fear-filled because fear is contagious. And some of you don't realize that you're building a home full of fear. All the decisions, all the conversations, all the constant news, you're just, your home is a place of fear. And you think, oh, as soon as this is over and the vaccine's out, we'll just switch it to faith. No, you won't. It doesn't work that way. If fear is incredible, here's what faith is. Faith is God is good and the future is bright even though things are hard and unknown. And I want you to see what he says about, about fear. And this is important. Do you guys know what the two, two top medications are for that are, are prescribed? Anxiety and heartburn, okay? I'm anxious and I'm stressed, right? Raise your hand if you struggle with fear, anxiety, or worry. Those of you who haven't raised your hand, it's because you're afraid, okay? It's okay. We love you. <laughs> Okay, we all struggle with it to some extent. Says this, the angel said to her, do not be afraid. And then look at verse 30. He tells her why not to be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you will not get COVID. <laughs> no, no, you'll get COVID, but the symptoms will be light. No, 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 that's it. Says, Your circumstances will change. That's why you shouldn't be afraid. That's not what he says. He says, do not be afraid because ultimately you found favor with God because of Christ. What, well, here's why people, we know why people are afraid. People are afraid because of two things. They realize I'm not in control and I'm going to die. COVID has just like, oh, I didn't know that. I mean, that, those were, here's the thing. Those were true before COVID and those will be true after COVID, right? Two years from now, what will be true? You won't be in control and you are still going to die. Those are two realities. So we have to do, what am I going to do with, am I going to embrace, am I going to choose to live a life of faith, trusting God's promises, or am I going to choose a life of fear? The second thing they have to do is they have to deal with their doubts. I want you to look at verse 34. I'm actually sorry, verse 31 says this. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, this is what he says to Mary, and you'll bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, you're going to give birth to the Messiah, the son of God. Now, understandably, look at, look at what Mary says. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? 
Or look back to verse 29, if, you, if your Bible's in front of you. She says a similar thing here. Uh, it says a similar thing about Mary here, verse 29. But she, Mary, was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So when you talk to young people, they have two things a lot of the times. You know, they have fear. One, they don't want to be misunderstood. We see that with Joseph and Mary. Secondly, they have fears. Thirdly, they have doubts. Do you see it? It says she's, she's troubled. She's asking questions. She's saying, how can this be? And I want to just talk about doubt for a little bit because doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's often an element of faith. It's like, I really believe this. My life's really staked on this. Therefore, I have questions about this. I want to make sure that I know, that I know, that I know, that I know, that I know. And I want you to understand that part of what we need to do, and just this is helpful to know, is if you study the Bible, you might be surprised at how many people, even people, heroes of the faith, struggle with doubt. Have you ever heard of a guy named Abraham? Okay, you have. His nickname is the father of the faith. Interesting nickname for a guy who doubted a lot. <laughs> I mean, really, he doubts. He ends up sleeping with Hagar. Shouldn't have done that. Well, he didn't trust the Lord. Uh, he's lying to people about his wife. Shouldn't have done that. Didn't trust the Lord. Right? He's a man. Okay, how about Job? One of the greatest guys in the Old Testament. Struggles with tons of doubt. Read the book of Job. Struggles with a ton of doubt. Um, how about um, Jeremiah? Writes the book of Jeremiah. Gets the word of God. They nickname him the weeping prophet. He's just constantly struggling with doubt. We get to the New Testament. There's a guy named John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. John the Baptist is this incredible man. He's preaching. He's baptizing. If you know the story in John chapter 11, I believe it is, he ends up in jail. His life's not going very well. And he sends his disciples to Jesus. And he says, he basically says to his disciples, can you go to Jesus and ask if he really is the Messiah? So they go to Jesus and they say, you know, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus comforts him in his doubts by giving him the word of God. We're talking about John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest person who ever lived, struggled with doubt. I mean, Jesus, one of his 12 disciples is nicknamed Doubting Thomas. I mean, how terrible is that of a nickname, right? He doubted one time, but that's his nickname. <laughs> Not great. It's like... And so, you know, I say all that just to say, we have to understand doubt. And doubt is complex. Now, now I want to talk about doubt because it's helpful. There's three types of doubt. There are what, what in, in, counselors and theologians call factual doubt. Factual doubt is, is, is they only say about 10% or 15% of people actually struggle with what's called factual doubt. Factual doubt is like, I'm really wrestling with creation evolution. Or I'm really wrestling is the word of God, the written word of God, fully inerrant, trustworthy, or... I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with Jesus as the only way, truth, life, and, and is he really the son of God? I mean, those are like, help me. And, and what's interesting is there are great answers to factual doubt. What, what, what theologians, counselors say is that factual doubt can actually be dealt with quite easily. So like, and the reason for that is, is that we're, we have 2,000 years of church history and there's nothing you're thinking about that somebody much smarter and much godlier had not thought about for a lot longer. You're like, I'm really thinking about this. It's like, yeah, there was a guy in the year 500 who wrote 6,000 pages on that. And if you wanted to read it, you could, and you could get your answers to those questions. But it's, not, it's because most people don't struggle with factual doubt, they struggle with emotional doubt. Emotional doubt is what they say something like 80% of people struggle with. Emotional doubt is more like, yeah, yeah, but why isn't God answering my prayers? Because like the factual answer to that is, why, isn't, why doesn't God answer prayer? The answer is, well, God answers every prayer, sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes later. I mean, there's a longer answer to that, but that's the answer to how does prayer work is that God answers every prayer, sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes later. And if all you're struggling with is factual doubt, you go, oh, got it, thanks, that makes sense. I forgot about the whole later thing and I forgot that God could tell me no. Cool. Um, 
But if you're, if you're struggling at the emotional level, you're like, well, my grandfather has stage four pancreatic cancer and he's a godly guy and he's really, and I don't know why, and he's suffering a lot as he's dying. And I don't understand that there's any purpose in this. You get what I'm saying? So that's emotional doubt. Emotional doubt is, um, I'm a, I don't know if God, I know kind of Christ died for people, but I'm a real sinner and I've done some really dark things or some really dark things have been done to me. So part of how you know what is the remedy for what you're going through, you have to know what, it, what am I actually dealing with? Is it factual? Is it emotional? Or is it willful doubt? Willful doubt is what the Pharisees have. And what's interesting is, what's interesting is the Pharisees, at one point, they ask Jesus for a sign and he says, no. He says, an adulterous generation seeks a sign. He says, no. And then John the Baptist asks for a sign. And he goes, yeah, here you go. And he says, tell him this, give him the scripture, encourage him with this word. Why? It's like, because the Pharisees were never going to believe. It was all a game. They were trying to trick Jesus. Whereas John the Baptist had the heart, right? True doubt says, it says that famous prayer in the the New Testament, I believe, please help my unbelief. And I want you to see what Mary does. And what Mary does in the midst of being misunderstood, three things that are important. She's misunderstood, she's fearful, and she's doubting. I want you to see what she does. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You can see all three members members of the Trinity in there. Verse 36, and your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 38, and Mary said, behold, and this is such a key verse, verse 38, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So what does Mary do? What do you do when you feel like I'm gonna be misunderstood because I'm a young person trying to be a Christian? I've got fear because we live in a culture that's full of fear. I have doubts because there's so many perspectives and so many questions and so many people smarter than me. I love what Mary does. She says, I'm just going to submit to the Lord. And you do two, here's submit, there's two elements of submission. When we, no one likes to talk about submission, right? But it's at the heart of Christianity. And we see Mary is the first Christian and she does it by submitting. She submits to his word and his will, right? She, with his word, she says, and here's what submission says. I will do whatever your word says, even if I don't like it. And that's, that's the whole, am I going to edit the Bible or change my mind? That's the, I've got to do that. The second part of it is, I will accept whatever you send my way, even if I don't understand it. I will obey everything the Bible says, even if I don't like it. I will accept everything you send my way, even if I don't understand it. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, when the Apostle Paul, he had gone through so much suffering, he goes, guys, I'm perplexed, but not driven to despair. That's my favorite verse when tragedy happens to go to. What does Paul say? What does perplex mean? I don't understand it. The Apostle Paul said that. I don't, it doesn't logically make sense why someone would lose their young child. I don't understand it. I'm perplexed, but I'm not driven to despair because I actually believe that God is good. I'm not going to hold the handle of fear. I'm gonna hold the handle of faith. I'm gonna continue to believe the future is bright, that God is good, that nothing about him has changed. So Mary does that, but then she needs one other thing, and I want you to see it in verse 39. In those days, what, days of being misunderstood, days of doubt, days of fear, days of personal submission. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth. 
And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Isn't that amazing? The emotional personhood of the baby in the womb right here in the text. But the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Third time she's gonna call her this. And blessed, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What she cannot do and what we cannot do is remain isolated. There are three things that have defined 2020 for me. Constant pressure, changing data, isolation. All the time. It's like, who can keep up with it? Constant pressure because it's like no one can make the right decision and you're gonna upset half the people no matter what you do. Great. Uh, so that's constant pressure. Then changing data. Oh, well, there's a new study out. Well, there's a study that contradicts. I say, well, there's a study that contradicts both those studies. It's like, oh, gosh. Okay, I don't know what to do. This person says this. This person says this. Whatever. And, you know, it's like, and so it's like there's constant pressure, there's changing data, and to make it worse, there's isolation. Most people only have the appearance of people's presence through a screen, through a Zoom call, and there's no relationship. And what we see with Mary is she needs, to, she needs really one thing. She needs encouragement. And Elizabeth knew that. Elizabeth, it says, that, what's the one thing that we're told about Elizabeth? She's spirit-filled. And what does she do? What does a spirit-filled person do? Say and see the grace of God in other people's lives. Some of you, your marriage needs way more encouragement. Way more encouragement. Some of you, what your kids need, yes, they need discipline. Yes, they need challenge. Man, do they need encouragement. Some of your employees, that's what they need. They need encouragement. Some people in your community group, that's what they need. They need encouragement. Satan's number one strategy for a believer is to discourage them, Right? It's like, okay, you're going to heaven. Your sins are forgiven. You have a relationship with God. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the church. What can I do to stop you? Constantly discourage you. And I just love that we need more of us, more of us, more of you. We need to be able to see people and say, I see the grace of God in your life. I just want to encourage you today that if you're a believer, you are blessed. You have found favor in God's eyes. Yes, there are things to be fearful of. Yes, of course. Yes, there are questions about Christianity that are sometimes difficult to answer. Yes. Yes, you are going to be misunderstood as the culture gets darker. Yes. What are we going to do together? We're going to commit to submitting to God's word even when we don't like what it says. And and committing and and doing this other thing over here. Submitting (laughs) to to, uh, the will of God even when he sends things we don't expect. And so she ends with worship just as we will. We're gonna go back to sing in a moment. Here's the first, as the band comes up, here's the first song in the New Testament. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the first song in the Old Testament, Exodus 15. We find ourselves today in the first song in the New Testament. I won't read all of it, but Mary says this. Mary is the first Christian, a young single mom, who's a teenager, who expresses faith in Jesus Christ. And here's what she says. Mary said, my soul, right? You have a soul. You will, you will one day die. Your body will die, but you will live forever. You have a soul. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. See, that's where it has to get personal. Christianity has to get personal. My, 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 me, 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 me. It's not private, but it's very, very personal. For he has looked on my humble estate. Here's one thing that you need to know. If you wanna be a Christian, here's what you need to know. You're a sinner. You're a big sinner. God's a great savior. God's got big grace. He says this, for he has looked on my humble estate of his servant, 
For behold, now on all generations will call me blessed. Verse 49, she brings it all back to the gospel. For he who, has, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Let's pray. Lord, we just come to you right now. We come with, with being misunderstood. Some of us are heading into Christmas knowing that our parents are going to misunderstand us. Some of us are going back to school and going back to work and, and our employees or our coworkers or our classmates, our neighbors, they don't understand us. Well, we wanna be understandable. We wanna seek to make Christianity intelligible to people, but there's certain things people just won't understand until the Holy Spirit comes upon them and gives them the eyes of faith to see it. What I wanna pray for are the young people in our church. What I pray for the middle schoolers and high schoolers especially, God. Raise up at Two Cities Church and across the city a army of middle schoolers and high schoolers, people who meet Jesus and are made into his disciples. Lord, we pray that what happened to Mary, that Christ be was formed in her, that Christ would be spiritually formed in the middle schoolers and high schoolers in our church, that we would send them off to college or trade school or work when they leave here and they would be ready, ready to walk with God, know him and make him known anywhere. Lord, I pray for any of us who have certain doubts, Lord, doubts and fears. We know the best strategy if we have doubt is get in community, get around the word of God, the spirit of God, the people of God. Let's pick up our doubts. Let's keep on following Jesus with our doubts. Lord, we know that some of us, we may have some doubts. We will die with some of our doubts. But then they will one day disappear, Lord, when faith becomes sight, Lord. Today, we gather together and part of what we do is we strengthen each other. I need to hear these brothers and sisters saying, we need to sing together, Lord. We need to remember why Christians have always celebrated Christmas, because it's about Jesus coming into the world to save us from our sins. It's in his name we ask, amen.